just going to read from the end of Matthew 28, which in light of Ashley's upcoming sermon and what we've been kind of thinking about during the Easter message has been really a, a really great time. It says this, then Jesus came to the disciples and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Well, we first of all acknowledge you as having all the authority and all the power. Every throne, every crown, every knee bows to you. Lord, we pray that we follow your example of what it means to have authority, what it means to have power, of what it means to have privilege, that we don't seek to hold on to it, but we seek to pour out. We seek ways to serve. And Lord, we do pray especially for our community now, we pray for ways that we are able to serve them, that we're able to follow your example and love them the way that we know that you love them. That we don't hold on to what we deserve, that we eagerly and freely and happily and thankfully give it away, imitating you all the time. Well, we pray for all the nations that are represented in Toronto. It may well be all of them. Well, we pray that we don't need to go far to meet people with experiences, with lives so different to our own. But Lord, we pray that we always come back to you. We know that you are one who knows us so deeply, so intimately. There is no part of us that remains hidden and no part of us that you don't love. Well, we pray that you be on our hearts, on our minds, on our lips, on our tongues, on our thoughts. As we talk to our neighbors about you as we share the difference that you make, as we reflect on what your victory over death means. I just want to give you a moment now, if, if maybe there's a neighbor or, or someone in your life who you feel those conversations have, have become hard. Somewhere maybe you want Jesus to, to soften those words. Knowing that we don't get to hold on to our rights. We give them because it's Jesus' example that we follow. I'll just give you a moment of that. And Lord, we pray that we are able to follow your commands, your desires, your expectations, knowing that they are love. That we are created in love, by love, for love. Lord, when we're tempted to stray from that, we pray, Lord, bring us back. Bring us back into the folds of your love, into the arms of your grace. For when we feel far, when it feels like we're stumbling away from you, when it feels like your voice is quiet or maybe drowned out by other voices, Lord, we pray that you bring us back to you. not forgotten.
just say tonight that you will not, you cannot abandon us. Lord, we thank you for who you are. And Lord, we ask all these things in your perfect name. Amen. Also, that prayer about other voices drowning out was not like a barbed attack. I was like really into it. And then I stopped talking. I'm like, oh, no, this sounds like a just calling out babies in prayer. Wow. Good look, James. <laughs> Ashley is going to come preach to us. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for Ashley. We thank you for everything that she's shared and given to our church already. And we thank you for the message that she has prepared for us this morning. Lord, we pray that our hearts be open that our minds be ready for change in excitement and expectation of who you are and how much your love changes us. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. Um, <clears throat> so I did an improv class recently. Super fun. And I'm really excited that we're going to do some improv games at church tonight. So I'm going to get this side of the room. I'm kidding. <laughs> resist. I am going to do a little drama game, and I promise you that it, it has a point. And I'm just going to need you to stick with me. Um, and the reason that I'm doing it is because our brains are wired to remember things that are silly, scary, and shocking. So I went with silliness. So I'm doing this because I hope the silliness helps what the message is about stick in your brain, and then you can, it'll be just right there whenever you're reading the Bible. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give myself a line of dialogue, one line, and then I'm going to give myself 30 seconds to say it in as many different ways as possible. I do need an audience volunteer. I need someone to time the 30 seconds. Are there any brave souls who would like to time for 30 seconds? I promise you don't have to do any acting. You just have to time me. <laughs> Okay, so the line of dialogue is, can you help me please? Okay, and Kevin's going to say go, and at 30 seconds, he's going to say stop. Where are you at, Kev? Okay, great. <laughs> Ready when you are. for Kev. <laughs> All right, guys, what a roller coaster that was, wasn't it? And thank you for letting me play drama games on a Sunday morning. What's the point of all that? Really simple. Intonation changes everything. The intent, the atmosphere, the re implied relationships in the two-second scene all changed depending on how I said it. Maybe you wondered, oh, is she annoyed at someone and why? 
Maybe you wondered, what terrible thing has happened that she's calling for help? Maybe you thought, why is she so bored? What are they making her do? That one line of dialogue was so different and implied such different things depending on how it was said. And today, we're going to be reading about the story of Jesus walking with two of his friends on the road to Emmaus. And I want us to pay really a close attention to what tone do we hear Jesus in? What is the tone that we trust to Jesus? So I'm going to read the passage, and it's going to seem really strange. When I was, my husband has to sit through my sermon from time to time at the back and went, who gets to? Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> um, and he was like, wow, that was really uncomfortable. So just there, again, there's a reason. So we're reading from Luke 24, verses 13 to 24. Luke 24, 13 to 24, if you'd like to follow along. The same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking in the village of Emmaus, seven miles out of the city. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. Suddenly, Jesus himself came along and joined them and began walking beside them. But they didn't know who he was because God kept them from recognizing him. You seem to be in deep discussion about something, he said. What are you so concerned about? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here in the last few days. What things? Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did wonderful miracles. He was a mighty teacher, highly regarded by both God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders arrested him and handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had thought he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. That all happened three days ago. Then some women from the group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them Jesus was alive. Some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, Jesus' body was gone, just as the women had said. Then Jesus said to them, you are such foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted by the prophets that the Messiah would come, would suffer all these things before entering his time of glory? Then Jesus quoted passages from the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining what all the scriptures said about himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus would have gone on, but they begged him to stay the night with them since it was getting late, so he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took a small loaf of bread, asked God's blessing on it, broke it, and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and at that moment he disappeared. It's impossible to read anything neutrally. That was my best attempt. We will get into tones of reading this. I just wanted you to have the narrative of the story in mind as we now ask ourselves, what tone do we read Jesus? I'm also going to locate this passage for us, and sometimes when I preach, it might feel like I'm explaining things that you already know. It might seem like I'm saying things that seem really obvious, and the reason is because they're not obvious to everyone. I had to be taught everything I know about the Bible, and so when I talk, I try and offer the same things that I needed when this wasn't so familiar to me, when it was all new to me. So, when is this happening? This is happening on the day that Jesus was resurrected. On the day that Jesus appeared alive after being killed, he goes and takes this long walk with his friends. 
why were his friends on this walk? It was actually a very common thing that was happening. It had just been the Feast of Passover, which is a huge, important Jewish festival. And Jesus and his followers had all gone to Jerusalem along with everybody in the area. They had walked to Jerusalem to celebrate there like a pilgrimage. And now it was all over, so they're all walking home. So that's what Cleopas and the other person are doing is they're walking home. And the road is full of people doing just that, returning back to where they come from. Except that for Cleopas and company, this is a sad walk. They had gone to Jerusalem thinking everything's about to change. They had watched Jesus enter into Jerusalem with people pulling palm fronds from the trees and laying them on the ground and shouting, this is the king. And just days later, it ended in horrible tragedy. Their friend, their teacher, the person they thought was, was maybe the chosen one, was killed. Dead. They buried his body in a rush. One of their rich friends had to lend them a tomb. And they had to do it quickly because the Sabbath was coming. And on the Sabbath, you weren't allowed to do stuff like that. So not only did their friend die this horrible, shocking death that they weren't expecting, they had to bury him in a rush and then just sit. Sit and wait and wonder what the heck just happened. A few days later, some of Jesus' women friends, they gathered up spices and they were going to go grieve and tend to his body even in death. Even in death, they were going to go care for him. And so they walked to the tomb with their spices, and the door of the tomb was open. And they were sad, shocked. Who would do that? Who would take the body of their dead friend? Hadn't they done enough? But then two angels appear to them and say, a little bit, the tone I read it in is, guys, come on, he's alive. Don't be sad. He's alive. The women are amazed. And they go running to tell the rest of Jesus' followers, and the disciples who were his like really close friends who he journeyed with, and they don't believe it. They don't believe it, and one of them runs to go check, and the body is missing, and they're just really confused. We know from a different part of the Bible that Jesus appears to one of the women. So he's made, a, he's made an appearance. Someone has seen him alive. Cleopas and his friend must have been among those people who had heard that news because they reference it here. And you know what they do? They decide it's time to go home. They don't know what to do with this information. So they start walking home. And Jesus would eventually show himself, his risen self, his death-defeating self to all his friends. But first, the resurrected Jesus goes for a long walk. Now, the cultural context of this is that Cleopas and his friend are walking, they're talking, they're in deep discussion, and a stranger walks up to them and is like, hey, what's going on? You guys seem really upset. And if I was reading my cultural context, big city Toronto sidewalk, if I'm deep in discussion with someone and a stranger walks up beside me and is like, hey, or What's going on? I'd be like, yeah, nothing, I'm good, while walking quicker. You know, that's my cultural context here. But the cultural context 
of this story is, like I said, there's many pilgrims on the way home. The road is full of people walking, and it's not uncommon for a Jewish person to see someone from their religion, from their background, and be like, oh, maybe I can walk with you guys, right? So culturally, we know that this is actually like kind of a normal interaction, and it's normal that Cleopas would respond genuinely. So when I read Cleopas's response to Jesus's question, he doesn't know it's Jesus. Jesus says, you seem to be in deep discussion about something. What are you concerned about? Cleopas stops short. Cleopas and his friends stop short. It says sadness written across their faces. So they respond honestly. You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened in the last few days. If I was in my modern day big city Toronto context, I might read that really annoyed. Like, you must be the only person who doesn't know what's going on. And thank you for interrupting my conversation. I think Cleopas is responding genuinely. I, I think that that's an assumption I can make because of learning about the cultural context. So, my first point that I want you to hold on to. Learning about the cultural context of the passages we're reading in the Bible really helps us to understand them. It helps us to ask, it helps us to answer the question, what tone is this set in? And I'm saying tone because it's one way of expressing what is the intention of this text? What is happening here to understand it? So first thing, cultural context really helps. And there's lots of places that we can go to learn that and look for that. You can ask Pastor James to point you to some great resources, right, James? Yeah, great, thanks. <laughs> and Jesus says something beautiful here. He leans in, in my imagination, and he says, what things? So someone has just expressed sadness. And instead of just saying, oh, okay, Jesus says, tell me more. Tell me more. What happened? This invitation to share more about the clearly hard things that these two people are facing. And Cleopas accepts that invitation because he doesn't just say a series of events. He doesn't just say the timeline of what happened with Jesus being crucified. He includes his own confusion. He says things like, we thought... We thought this was the Messiah. Implication, we were super wrong. Not only is he sharing the sadness of what happened, he suddenly opens up about how distressing and confusing this is. And then he goes even one step further. He shares a very intimate detail about the followers of Jesus. So Jesus' close friends and followers are dealing with some of them thinking that he's alive. He talks about some of the women went and they said they saw angels and they say he's alive. No, no one really believes it yet except the women. And this is like a very intimate detail. You don't just go around sharing with someone who you just met a detail about your teacher, friend, person you looked up to that might be completely heretical, like that might get you crucified. But he accepts this person's invitation and he shares the grief 
the confusion. And he just says, we're trying to figure that out, essentially. We're trying to figure out what he means when he says this. Now, how we read what Jesus says next is really important. And I didn't really realize that until I had my own experience of reading this passage this week as I studied it. It was one that I thought over really well. And it turns out that I had a prescriptive days of hearing. So Jesus says, you are such foolish people, and then goes on to talk about, hey, this is predicted in scripture. And by scripture, we mean the writings in the Bible. We have the Bible. Jesus back then had the what we call like some of the Old Testament um, writings that were sacred texts for the Jewish people. So he's saying, you, you don't even know what our sacred texts say. You should have known, right? I read it so harshly. And I just kind of carried on. And then a friend sent me an audio devotional, and she was like, oh, this is about the passage you're preaching on. I was like, hmm, I'll listen to it. And the person reading read Jesus so tenderly. And all of a sudden, I was like, wait a second. so differently here and I'm going to read it both ways for you then Jesus said to them you are such foolish people you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures wasn't it clearly predicted by the prophets that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his time of glory so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures? Wasn't it clearly predicted by the prophets that the Messiah would have to suffer all things before entering his glory? I mean, first Jesus is so mad at his friends. He's so mad. They're so-called friends. How do you not get this, guys? He's frustrated. He's irritated. He's sarcastic even. The second Jesus is shaking his head ruefully at his friends who have just expressed so much sadness. And he's like, oh, you are about to be so happy. And he's like so excited to tell them like, oh my gosh, you're, you're going to just be blown away when I explain this next part to you. On my own, I heard one first one doesn't even match up with who I know Jesus to be. Like, what was I doing? So here's the second point. When reading the Bible, I need the community of other Christians or else I miss something. Or else I don't see things. Or else I don't understand things. So when I'm reading the Bible, cultural context helps to know the time and the place and what is happening when this was written and who it was written to. But even with that, I need more. I need the community of other Christians. I need the community of Christians who have come 2,000 years before us. I need the community of Christians who are very different from me, who have different experiences. So two things I need when I'm reading the Bible. The third thing that I needed was self-awareness. 
because it's all well and good for that other audio devotional, this other person who loves Jesus, studies the Bible, to have perceived something else in the text. But if I didn't have self-awareness, do you know what would have happened? I would have scoffed. I would have been like, that's nice. Definitely not what the text is saying. Right? But I I had to have a moment of self-awareness. Oh, okay, sometimes there is a voice of condemnation in my head, a voice that, that thinks that people are always mad at me. And maybe it was that voice that was reading Jesus. Maybe it wasn't just the text telling me. Maybe that voice in my head was coloring how I was reading it. And that self-awareness allowed me the, the humility to say, because this other way of reading it is worth hearing, is worth sitting with, is worth taking into my understanding of this text. And when we are reading the Bible, it's super important to cultivate that self-awareness because you can never not be who you are. You are going to be you with your experiences, your pains, the things that you were taught in the past, the questions you have now, your fears, your triumphs, your insecurities. And you are always bringing that to the table when you read the Bible. And that's okay. That's not inherently a bad thing. But what we need to do is cultivate self-awareness, to know ourselves so that we can be curious about what's going on. Oh, am I having a knee-jerk reaction here? I wonder why. Am I someone who finds it really hard to admit I'm wrong? So maybe I often read things in the Bible as being about other people and not me because that's really uncomfortable. Like I said, am I someone who really is scared of being in trouble? Probably for reasons in my life. So if I'm always scared of being in trouble, am I reading being in trouble into the Bible, into what Jesus says way more often than it's there? These kinds of questions are really important when we are sitting and reading and trying to understand what the Bible is. So those three things, those three things really helped me as I was studying this passage and trying to figure out what tone is Jesus using here with his friends? How, because how I think he's talking is going to tell me a lot about what I think this text is saying, ultimately. I needed cultural context, I needed the community of other Christians, and I needed to cultivate self-awareness about what I bring to the table when I read the Bible. But the other thing that I need is I need to, I need to know who Jesus is so that I can take all of this information and I can say, what of it matches up with who Jesus is and what of it should I wonder? Is that, does that line up with who Jesus says he is? And you can think of it this way. My kids aren't here today, but um, if I said, James, will you go tell my kids that I need to see them? James could go see my kids, and he could say it any number of ways. He could say, hey, your mom wants to see you. He could say, hey, your mom wants to see you. He could say, your mom wants to see you. He could say it any number of ways. And the way that he said what I said might make my kids feel certain ways. Maybe they would feel scared. Maybe they would feel confused. Maybe they'd be, like, neutral about it, right? But I am confident that my kids know who I am. And that if someone else says something angrily, 
that they would come find me and be like, let's try and figure this out. How did you actually say it? Because they know who I am. They know that I'm not going to send a stranger, someone they know very well, um, to go be mad at them secondhand why. So they would question that. They would be like, okay, I might be a little concerned, but I'm going to go figure it out with the person who I know really well. And so that's, that's why we need to know who Jesus is so that we can, we can test all of this against that. And how do we know who Jesus is? How do we know who Jesus is? There's my little survey. Well, thank goodness that we just did a sermon series <laughs> called The I Am Statements of Jesus. This is the beautiful, amazing thing about what we believe. Jesus tells us who he is. It doesn't, there is so much mystery in the Christian faith. Let us be very clear. It's more mystery than it is answers. Absolutely. But also Jesus tells us who he is. So when I'm trying to figure out what it is I'm reading, and I'm trying to figure out what is going on here, whether it's Jesus speaking or it's the rest of the Bible, because we believe it's a story that leads to the presence of Jesus with us in person and then the resurrection, and now we're living in that. I can say, but who is Jesus? Because who Jesus is tells us who God is. If you're like, well, I know Jesus, but, but what about God? Same. If, Je- if that's who Jesus is, that's who God is. And we just went through a whole series on who Jesus says he is. Jesus says he is the bread of life. Jesus feeds us. Jesus meets our needs. Jesus says, I am the door. Jesus is saying, you need a way, there's a way. I am the way. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is not darkness. Jesus is not, Jesus cannot even have proximity to death and darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus isn't just a shepherd, which is already a rich metaphor for how Jesus cares for us. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I'm the shepherd that everyone looks up to because they do things so patiently, so kindly, so compassionately, so self-sacrificingly. He is the good shepherd. He will lead you in kindness and compassion. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus repeats himself a lot. I am the resurrection and the life. I have no proximity to death. Even though I experienced death, and I know how scary that is because I lived it with you, actually I defeated it and I've overcome it. I am the true vine. Sarah preached on this. The source, that from which we bear fruit. The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus repeats himself a lot. We know who Jesus is. And when I stopped and I was like, wait a second, who do I know Jesus to be? This is who I know Jesus to be. I know Jesus to be someone who on the day that he rose from the dead in a move that absolutely changed the entire course of our lives, I am going to go meet my two friends who are having the worst day ever, and I'm going to take a very long walk with them. And I'm going to let them be sad and confused, not because I don't have hope to offer them, but because I care. I care that they are sad and confused right now, and they need someone who cares about them, who's going to listen, 
And then I'm not just going to be like, oh, everything is solved. I'm going to slowly speak to them in a way that makes sense to them and show them how it's not foolish to hope. Because that's the tone that I read into Jesus quoting passages from the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining what all the scriptures said about himself. These Cleopas and his friends, they had firsthand testimony that Jesus was alive. And they had all their preconceived ideas about who Jesus was. And they knew the scriptures. They knew these things that Jesus was talking about. And they needed someone to say, hey, let me walk you through all the bits of information that you have right now that aren't adding up. Because you're right. You know, it is crazy to hope that someone rose from the dead. But let me help you understand why it's actually not that crazy. And he journeys with them in their confusion, in their grief. So the tone that I read Jesus in now, having cultural context, having been in community with other Christians, having had some self-awareness about what I was bringing to the table when I read the text, and comparing all that against who Jesus says he is. I know that this is the kindness of the risen Savior for whom taking a long walk with his friends is exactly what he wants to do on his first day as the resurrected victor of all heaven and earth. And then their journey ends, and that's where I'm going to wrap up here. They get to the end of their journey. They're near the town of Emmaus. It's very culturally normal for them to insist that he come home with them to extend that friendship to them. And this is within the realms of the traditions that they know and that they talk about. And he sits down with them. At this point, my imagination is that he starts reading from the notes of his own chapters. I'm so excited for that. Because now they're ready. Now they're ready. He's journeyed with them. They've processed their grief. They've expressed it. He showed them evidence in something that really matters to them, such as the scriptures. And he's like, I've, I've met you guys where you're at. You're ready to see this now. And the next thing that they see, they sit down. Jesus breaks bread. They're going to eat together. And all of a sudden, their eyes are open. <laughs> it's been you all along. It's been you all along. Of course it was you. Who else would take time to do that? Who else would love us that way? That's me. That's not in the text. I just want to be very clear. <laughs> you know. <laughs> People meet the living Jesus Christ around our tables. When we do life together, that's where people meet Jesus. The resurrected, alive king of it all who loves us who takes time to journey with us. So join us on the journey. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you give us the Bible in all of its wild, sometimes confusing, sometimes contradictory, complex, nuanced beauty. And that you trust us to be a people who will treat it as the sacred, precious thing that it is. And that you empower us through your Holy Spirit that you said is with us to the end of the age. That we are not alone when we're trying to read it and figure it out. No, you are with us and you give us ways 
to have a deeper understanding, to, to start to pull at the threads of the mystery, to, to know how to live our lives in a way that looks a little bit like Jesus and hopefully more and more like Jesus. God, I pray that you would help us to have those encounters with you, the ones where we experience your patience, your kindness, your goodness, your loving, your peace. And God, help us to be people who invite others into intimate relationships where they encounter the living Jesus Christ. We pray all this in your name. Amen.